Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. useful for our kids to see us get frustrated and to lose our cool and to be human beings, right? I'm not sure it would be so helpful for a child to have a parent who's calm all the time and says something wise in every moment. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 178. Today, we're talking about teaching kids mindfulness with Annika Harris. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark-Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Course, and I'm the author of the upcoming new book, Raising Good Humans, which I encourage you to check out RaisingGoodHumansBook.com. We might have the pre-order bonuses ready for you, so you should totally check it out, okay? But I just haven't even said hello to you yet. So hello, I am so glad you are here uh, for today's podcast conversation. I love talking to Annika Harris, and she is the author of Conscious, and she's also the author of the children's book, I Wonder, and she's a collaborator on the Mindful Games Activity Cards by Susan Kaiser Greenland, who will also be on the podcast coming up later, and she's a consultant for science writers and a volunteer mindfulness teacher for the Inner Kids organization. So 
that's her bio. But, you know, this is what I can tell you about Annika is that she is one smart, thoughtful woman. She is a really clear thinker. And, uh, and, and basically, she became fascinated by the nature of experience itself, right? So she, you know, she was fascinated about this. And so kind of exploring this idea, she, she wrote a children's book, she started teaching mindfulness to children and wrote a book about the mystery of the universe for adults in this book, Conscious, which is so very cool and has me has spurred many, many interesting conversations for me. So um, you'll get to hear how she began her own mindfulness practice, how it relates to parenting her children, and get a taste of the mystery of consciousness. I'm going to ask Annika about the best practices for sharing the power of mindfulness with kids. Uh, we're going to talk about how it's okay to say, I don't know, to our children, and it, how, in fact, it can be really beneficial and this, and I, I invite you to look for this idea of getting curious about our experience and how this curiosity itself can actually relieve suffering. So this is a very powerful conversation. Before we dive in, I just invite you to make sure you are subscribed to the podcast and, and ask you if you have left a review yet. If you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it makes such a huge difference to the podcast. Plus the reviews, when I read them, I just feel like my heart is going to burst open with joy. So if you would like to leave a review and make my make me smile enormously ear to ear, that would be huge. But beyond making me smile, it helps so many other people find this podcast and find all this important work and these experts and these, these ideas, right, that we want to spread. So you can do your part by leaving a review. All right. Now, join me as, at the table as I talk to Annika Harris. Annika, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. As I said, my husband is a big fan of your husband doing all this work, and it's kind uh -huh. of nice that we get to to hang out. And I know that I know that you've done a lot of things. You've recently, of course, written your book Conscious, which we're going to talk about. But and you've written books for children and things like that. Mm -hmm. A lot of work in mindfulness. So I'm just curious for you about what. What got you started in your interest in, in mindfulness and mm. in meditation? Yeah, it actually originally started a long time ago, lifetime, many lifetimes ago. <laughs> I was a professional dancer and I had an injury and part of my physical therapy was taking yoga classes. And this was right at the beginning of yoga becoming something that was widely available. And so the concept of meditation, I think I'd heard about it, but I didn't ever officially experience it until I was, I was in that class. And it immediately spoke to me and I became interested. It's actually related to my, my lifelong fascination with, with consciousness, which has literally been something I've been thinking about since I was a child. And initially, it was just a fascinating thing to me to spend time in a systematic way paying attention to my moment to moment experience, partly just because, I mean, almost, you know, like from a scientific perspective, just to notice um, things that we don't normally notice because we don't usually use our attention in that way. So I found it very interesting. And it wasn't that long after that I met my husband, Sam Harris, who had been studying meditation all over the world. And then he kind of introduced me to a 
to a more formal teaching and, and practice. And I, I became very connected to the, the Vipassana practice, which, which spoke to me when I first became aware of it. And so I, I immediately started practicing with um, Vipassana teachers. And there's a lot in there I want to kind of talk about, but just to define some terms, Vipassana Mm. is a sort of a method of of meditation where you're, it's basically mindfulness meditation. You're paying attention to the things that are happening in the present moment. Yes. um, For the listener. Um, Yes. And it can also, it's, it's one of the forms that can easily be taught in a, in a secular context. Um, there are no religious beliefs that, that come along with it. And so I think part, that was one of the reasons it, it spoke to me also. Um, and one of the reasons why it's so great for teaching children, especially in the context of being in a school, because it's a, it is a completely secular type of practice. But, and, but you yeah. said you, you got into meditate, you, you were interested in mindfulness. It, it spoke to like, as you were doing this meditation practice in this yoga class, you also mentioned that it, it, it kind of tapped into this lifelong thing. Like as a child, mm-hmm. you were interested in consciousness and this. Yes. Thing. So I'm not sure my daughters have ever expressed <laughs> an interest in consciousness. So I'm a little curious about you. As yeah, a I mean, I don't even think I had the language for it. I don't think I was thinking about it in terms of like knowing that it was consciousness. I, um, that would be hilarious. Hey, mom. <laughs> What do you think about the nature of God? Although it's interesting. I mean, I'm sure your kids have gone through phases. Like they get interested in these existential things and they get interested in death and they get interested in, you know, like, why am I here? And we have these funny conversations, even when they're very young, right? I was sorry. I was just thinking of a conversation I had with my daughter, but I don't think I remember it well enough to, to, (laughs) to repeat it here. But she, she was just interested in where she had been before she was born. Um, and so we were having that conversation. But I think I tended to think about those types of things as a child. And I think some kids tend more towards that than others. And one of my daughters has always been that way. And the other one isn't so much. And I, you know, I think my, my oldest daughter is, is more like I was as a kid. I just, I don't know, I was, I was a deep thinker and I was, I was interested in these things. So I, I wasn't thinking about it so much in terms of consciousness, but more kind of just really like the core of what am I experiencing right now? And what, what is this, you know, what, what is this being a human being? And I also, I've talked about this a little bit. I I had, uh, I started getting bad migraines when I was eight years old. Um, It's interesting. I just made this connection in this moment that my older daughter who also has these types of thoughts um, started getting migraines when she was eight years old also. And I don't know if there's possibly a connection there. But experiencing extreme pain that in some cases I wasn't able to take medication or we were on a trip, you know, family trip where I didn't have access to it. And there was something about, and I think this is actually a common experience now that I've, I've heard other children talk about. Um, and it was part of the reason I became interested in working with children is that they, they often become interested in their experience in this way, but especially if they've experienced some type of trauma or pain there's, I think, a coping mechanism that's a natural coping mechanism that can come up for children in getting curious about your experience and how, even if it's just a very slight shift, that you can notice when you're having to deal with pain um, regularly in your life, you can start to notice the difference between fighting the pain and having this stance of wanting it to go away, um, which of course is totally normal and natural and, and we should we should all have that feeling about pain. But when there's when there's nothing that can be done in the moment, letting it be there and becoming curious about what it actually is can give you a little bit of relief. 
and can definitely be almost less intense than when you're trying to to push it away. And of course, I'm sure you've noticed this in your own practice with dealing with emotional pain or dealing with all of the things um, large and small that we struggle with in life. Uh, often it's it's like this paradoxical thing where if you let it be there um, or even pay more close attention to it, there's a way in which that kind of um, relaxes or softens your relationship to it and, and gives you ways um, better ways to cope with it or leaves you open for insights. Yeah, yeah, to relax with it. It's just that it's that equation, which I can't remember who is the source of it, but like pain times resistance equals suffering, right? So if we are if we are resisting our pain, that's what is giving us all the suffering is like the trying not to have it. And you yeah. kind of, so it sounds like you stumbled upon this like as a kid because you just kind of had no choice. You're like, okay, yes. here I am. This is horrible. It sucks. And mm-hmm. and it's really interesting to kind of um and I and I can imagine that it's not something most of us encounter because you know there's there's no reason for us to kind of surrender to it right like there's yes. always sort of things to do but right. having no choice it's just like okay this is what it is and and then instead of and you're kind of switching it away from judging it like go away go away go away and into this curiosity and that mm-hmm. that's amazing and so it, it provided some relief for you it sounds like yes wild. yeah i mean of course i was still i was still suffering but yeah. i noticed there was a and when you're in that kind of pain just the slightest shift it makes a difference um, and then I, uh, pretty soon after I started realizing that I was able to start applying that to other areas of my life, but not nearly to the extent that I could have if someone had actually been teaching me how to meditate. And so it was on my first meditation retreat. I did a five-day meditation retreat when I was, I was about 25. And uh, one of the thoughts that just kept coming back to me as I was practicing was I wish I had learned this as a child. And why don't we teach this to children? <laughs> like, this is, we, we require, um, you know, it's in, in most cases we require physical education. We, we um, just as a society understand that physical education is extremely important and it, it should be a part of every curriculum in every school. Um, and, but this is like a, a, um, so a mental emotional education that, most adults don't even get in their in their lifetime, and I just kept thinking about children and how it the these techniques could have helped me as a child, and that we should be teaching them to children now. And there was almost no one teaching children meditation at the time, um, and that was when. And so then it was probably a few months after I had that experience on retreat that I met Susan Kaiser Greenland, and that was. <laughs> a, a wonderful person to encounter for this reason. She was one of the only people. Um, she was really one of the first to put a, a, a real curriculum together. And to this day, I think she she really has one of the strongest and most um, insightful and, and brilliant curriculums for children. So I started volunteering for her immediately. It was Kismet. And, and Susan yeah. Kaiser Greenland is also a guest on the podcast. And right at the time of this recording, I can't tell you exactly which episode number, dear uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, But you can find her. Just search on mindfulmamapodcast.com. Wow. So that, so you wanted, now I've, now, of course, like there are whole 
all kinds of people teaching meditation to children. And it's, it's yeah, in the schools, there's mental schools, there's all these different things. Yeah. It's really a thing that sort of started happening in, I think, a lot of places simultaneously where people realize that. And so my husband's had hair thinning issues for years, for a long time. It's not something you'd love to have. And he's done some things for it. But recently started using Nutrafol. And oh my gosh, we have actually seen quite a difference. Did you know that for women, hair thinning happens in approximately one in two women? And if you're among them, I want you to know that you're definitely not alone. It's normal, but it's not openly talked about and going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. But you can join over one million people who are doing something about it with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding, like my honey. Physician-formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol's supplements support healthy hair growth from within by targeting root causes of thinning, including stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism as they evolve throughout a woman's life. And while many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol's women's hair growth supplement for six months. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription required, free shipping, and automated deliveries to ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code MINDFULPARENTING. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L. Dot com promo code mindful parenting that's nutrafol.com promo code mindful parenting i want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out especially if you ever deal with any school system which you probably do is called understood explains this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert juliana ortube and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans also known as ieps And the season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. I'm just curious about now, I know you have you have children, right? You have a, a five-year-old and a 10-year-old right now. So people ask me this all the time because mm. I teach moms and dads meditation. And so say, well, how, what about your children? What do you do with your children? And personally, my children, I mean, although my youngest did some meditations to sort of help her go to sleep at night when she was younger, but 
they have a kind of a lot of resistance to it, specifically because I teach other people. They're like, oh, mom, <laughs> don't do that mindful mama thing with me. You know, like they're just like, oh, exact same problem. problem. Yes, yes. It, it really, it's challenging. Um, so are you able to teach your kids or how does that yes, work out? Yes and no. Um, so, you know, the first thing I'll say is I asked, um, one of my favorite meditation teachers, Joseph Goldstein, who's become a close friend. I started encountering this resistance in my first child early on. And I just thought, okay, (laughs) how do I, I mean, you know, long-term, how do I actually teach this to her? But I was encountering so much resistance. I thought, how do I just make, not make her allergic (laughs) to this? with the idea because mom does it and is trying. And, and, you know, there's a power struggle there because they know they want you. Um, they know you want them to learn how to meditate. And so um, I asked Joseph Goldstein, does he know any parents who have children, grown children who, who meditate? And what do you suggest and how do you see it going right and going wrong? And he said, from what I've seen, my best advice is to not try to teach them, but to model it for them, to do it in front of them. Yes, that's exactly yes. what I've been saying. you always say. Yes, that's yeah. what I've been saying and doing. So, I'm, I mean, I hope this will, I don't, I can't say yet. They're five and 10 and I, you know, we don't, the results are not in, <laughs> but <laughs> I do my best to talk about how it benefits me, to bring it into conversation whenever it's relevant, you know, not in a forced way, but when it makes sense to you, mm-hmm. um, so that they understand that I think it's important for me without pushing it on them at all. Um, I almost never suggest that they do it. Um, I really don't, I don't attempt, I think I did at first and I've, I've stopped doing that. Mm. Um, but I'm, I make it something that they know is available to ask me questions about. And then I've, I haven't done this as much lately and it's good. This is a good reminder to, to continue to do it, but we have a little area near, near a play area, um, in our home where I set up some meditation cushions so that I could, when they're playing with Legos, when they're doing Imagine, when they're, you know, just involved in their own activities, I could sit there where they could see me and I'd set a timer mm-hmm. um, and just do a simple five-minute meditation, which I actually think is very beneficial for me also to, yeah. to meditate in the midst of family life and chaos and playtime and kids poking my, me, you know, <laughs> asking me what I'm doing and um, trying to get me to stop. I think that's an interesting way to meditate for me anyway. Um, but I'm hopeful that just ha- the, them having an experience of seeing me do it will sink in. And at some point, if they are interested or become interested or realize it could be something useful, then they know that it's there. Yeah, um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll have to stay in touch and see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Works. But it sounds like like me, like you mm-hmm. want it to, you want them to be intrinsically motivated to do this. This is not something you want to yes. push on them because, yes. you know, parents ask me all the time, how can I teach my kids to meditate? And I, mm-hmm. I often like have no answer for that because I yeah. can't teach my own kids to meditate. Yeah. But I, I feel the same way. Like it has to, I want them to, they need to want to Mm-hmm. know how to do it but I provide an environment where it's discussed they right. see that I practice and and we actually do family meditation family um, mi- mindfulness retreats um, mm. as well um, every yeah. couple of years and so yeah I've been interested in that our little one I feel like she's just old enough to attempt something like that um, I mean they probably do do them with very young kids I just mm. <laughs> I didn't feel quite ready until about this age but yeah that's something I'd like to look into I think that's it that's a nice yeah. idea 
I think five is a is a a good age because um, mm-hmm. then maybe she can go off and do some things with the other kids, and right. maybe you can have some time where you're not. She's right. not like a Klingon. Yeah. <laughs> Velcro on your leg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I do. I um, on my website, I have some free um, guided meditations, and now um, all of my lessons and guided meditations are on um, the Waking Up app, which yeah. is my husband's meditation app. Um, and I'm very clear on the page. I, I ask that people read this page of information before they begin. Um, and one of the things I say is that it's incredibly important, um, essential that children are internally motivated um, for a variety of reasons, one of which is, and this is one of the things that's interesting to me about consciousness, that we can't know what another person's experience is firsthand, right? And mm-hmm. and meditation is all about um, your subjective personal experience. Um, and so it's not like anything else you can teach them where you can see on the outside how it's going. Um, you can kind of require that a child practice piano and do their homework and things like that. And you know, they're doing it, but with meditation, they can only do it if they're doing it and you can't Mm. control it. Right. (laughs) You can't. Um, And so, yeah, for them to be successful at it, they have to be willing to do it and they have to be, I think, interested and motivated. Yeah. But you've had success teaching it in the schools um, yes. with, with classrooms and things like that. What's nice about that is then there's like a peer, a positive peer pressure, which makes it, I'm sure, a lot easier, yes. even if everybody isn't like, oh, yay, I want to meditate. <laughs> yeah. No, and I actually, in general, I recommend to um, parents that they have their children and actually to other teachers, teachers who teach children when they're starting out. Um, I... I think in some cases, I think it, it works to do it in a private setting, but I, I, I think that in almost every case, it's much more beneficial for children to learn in a group. And actually, oh shoot, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> talking about teaching, teaching kids in a group. Oh, right. This was my, I realized I had a part two answer to, to your question about teaching my children, which is I was able to volunteer in my daughter's elementary school they were very interested in having mindfulness taught there. And so I went in and taught my daughter's class in kindergarten, and then I followed the class through second grade. So mm-hmm. that's a very unique opportunity that I had, but for any parents who are actually teaching, um, if there's a school, if your child's school is is interested, that I felt that was one way I could sneak it in, <laughs> actual instruction, because um, she was excited that I came to the school and the kids ended up enjoying it. And so it was kind of a fun activity where I, where um, she was willing to do it in a way that she wouldn't have been at home. That's so cool. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if you might want to, I don't know, uh, you mm. may concur on this, but in um, that is that for all the, the parents who are interested in teaching their kids mindfulness to help them regulate their emotions mm. and have more self-regulation, um, it's one thing that I always say, it's always, we, we have to walk the talk. We yeah. have, we have to have our own practice first. Yes, always. And I say that to every teacher that I'm training as well. Yeah. Good. Um, and I do think, I think so many of our, the values that we hold most dear, um, especially when, when we walk the walk, those things, um, do get to our children. I, I believe that very strongly. And so I think mm-hmm. this is, this is one of those things. Um, yeah, you know, like teaching them to be honest and kind and, and all of those things. I think they they absorb all of that. 
So you've had a, a long-term practice. You've been practicing since you were, you know, tw- at least 25, right? So for, yeah. for a yeah. while. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I'm wondering, um, so did you find, I mean, so part of what was for me, my own experience of coming mm-hmm. into parenting and, and leading me to do this work is that I discovered how triggered I was mm-hmm. um, and this anger that arose in me when my child was two. It's amazing to look yeah. back at those pictures, see how cute she was and imagine, <laughs> no, and how, how this, this, was, this energy was coming up in me that I was so sort of ashamed of and, and frustrated mm-hmm. with. And I'm just wondering, you know, for you, did you, did, were you able to what was it like kind of like seeing the, you know, maybe having this ideal of maybe always mm-hmm. being calm and kind and mindful and, and things like that? And, and then what was the reality and was, was there yeah. a, a difference between those for you? Yeah, no, um, I have quickly learned that I was not going to be calm <laughs> almost ever <laughs> in the role of a parent. And I was saying to you before we began that I, I'm so happy that you have this podcast and that there are resources like this available to parents because I think that's such a common experience. And I think one of the most important things for, for parents and, and mothers in particular to share with each other is how hard it is and how we don't respond in the ways that if we had you know, an hour to think about it and plan, you know, maybe we would, that we're, we're always in the moment and we get triggered a lot and raising kids is in the best of circumstances is still incredibly stressful and, and difficult. Um, so I think, you know, I think one of the things that has helped me having a practice is really, it's, it's such a simple thing, but it's just having a tiny bit of space, just having that buffer where, I can pause for a microsecond even um, before I have an, an immediate reaction, especially to, to during the times when I'm most stressed and exhausted and getting triggered, um, to just wait you know, before I say anything, before I respond. But, you know, something else I've learned that, that makes sense to me now, but I didn't know before I was a parent, um, I actually think... To some degree, of course, you can you can go overboard with this, but to some degree, it's actually useful for our kids to see us get frustrated and to lose our cool and to be human beings, right? I'm not sure it would be so helpful for a child to have a parent who's calm all the time and says something wise <laughs> in every moment, you know? Um, part of our job, and I again, I didn't realize this until I was a parent, but part of our job is... Um, to teach them how to be in the world and to also show them um, what reactions they might encounter with other people in a totally safe environment. So I think um, sometimes it's very important to pause and to think about what you say. And sometimes they're being obnoxious and annoying and it's good for them to get that feedback, right? (laughs) Um, And I think it's good for us to be mindful of how much Mm-hmm. how big a reaction we have to those things. But I think we often, um, too often feel guilty or feel like there's something wrong with um, having that kind of reaction when it can be very beneficial to children to learn at home in a safe environment with someone who loves them unconditionally that, yeah, when you behave that way, when you talk to someone that way, you're not going to like, <laughs> you're not going to like how they respond and they'll, they will get annoyed or they will get angry or their feelings will get hurt. Um, and yeah. so I think as long as we're being um, careful about the, the message we're sending to our child in that moment, I think 
our natural response, our first response is sometimes a healthy thing for them to see. Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more that yeah, I mean, imagine if you did have that parent who was like always calm and like never got frustrated and was always like kind and calm. Like those would be impossible shoes to live up to. <laughs> yes. Like you you would feel like, what is wrong with me? I am such a horrible person that look yeah. at my mom, she's yeah. perfect. Well, I give them no tools for going out into the world and interacting with other people. And I also think on some level, it's just not honest. Um, And that, that to me is incredibly important. And actually, that's, that's one of the reasons I wrote my children's book. But I think being honest with children is one of the most important things we can give them. Well, good. I'm, that was a perfect segue because I want to know about your book. It's called, it's called I Wonder, right? And, and, and so I unfortunately haven't had the chance to read the book, but yes. it, and it, I'll send you a copy. Oh, good. Yay. Yeah. Um, but your kids are, your kids are a, almost too old. You said they're nine and Nine, nine and twelve, but I am. Uh, I'm very closely connected to their school that has mm-hmm. K and up, so it may yeah. end up being donated there after I. Read. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I also the truth is, I wrote this book. I don't think of myself as someone who could write a children's book. I still don't, even after writing one. I really wrote this book for parents to read with their children. Hmm. Um, it was a book that I. It's the type of book that I was looking for at a certain point with my with my daughter, and I just couldn't find it. And you know, a lot of passion projects come this way when you're when you can't find the thing in the world <laughs> that's how this podcast came about right yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and so yeah. the book talks about not the parent not knowing right so give us a little sense yes. of it. um so it's it's really the main um message is that it's okay to say i don't know and not only is it okay, but it actually is the source of one of the most wonderful feelings we can experience as human beings, which is wonder and awe and curiosity. And it's the starting point for all learning. I mean, there's, there's no learning to be done if you know the answer, right? Like learning begins with not knowing the answer. And so I felt that I was encountering this cultural problem in our culture that we I think mostly unintentionally, but it comes with with American culture in general, that somehow it's scary or embarrassing to not know the answer. And I, so I, I wanted to help send this message to children that it's a, it's a wonderful thing to not know. And it's not only okay to say, I don't know, but it's something to celebrate. And so it's really just a dialogue between a mother and a daughter as they go on a walk and they encounter different types of mysteries and different opportunities for the mother to say she doesn't know the answer, for her to explain to her daughter that it's okay for her to not know the answer. And then there, so there are questions that the mother does have answers to where the daughter can say she doesn't know, but then the mother can help her understand the answer. And then it gets to some things um, like forces in the universe that are just utterly mysterious to all human beings and how those mysteries can actually connect us. There are some things that no human beings have the answer for, and we can all wonder about them together. So that's that's the message of the book. <laughs> oh, now I'm sad I didn't have it when they were younger, because I love yeah. how having children gives us permission to re-experience all of yeah. these things, especially young children. Like I loved how when my my daughters were younger, gave me permission to sing for like yeah. the first time in my life. Yeah, <laughs> Somebody yeah me too. Yes. <laughs> And to wonder about those things and be like, oh my God, look at yeah. that bee. Well, and that's, that's kind of the reason why I've 
thought of it as for adults. I mean, I think this is a message that adults need to, and that I needed to remind myself of. I actually, in a Q&A for that, that book, someone was asking me, oh shoot, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm spacing on the exact way that the question was phrased, but the idea is that we often learn from our children when we're teaching something to them, right? So oh, yeah. I noticed this in my daughter that I was reluctant to say I didn't have the answer and that that actually doesn't follow my values. And I, I most of my work is with scientists. Mm. Um, and that's such a, a high, you know, core value for scientists to, that's, you know, everything they do starts from saying they don't know something, right? Mm. And I have always noticed that difference between the scientific community and the rest of of the culture where there's this willingness to say, to admit they don't have the answers that I feel like, I, you know, I wish more, more people had. Um, so I noticed that in teaching this to my daughter, um, I was also giving myself permission. I was kind of learning the lesson again myself. And so, yes, I feel like it's, it's a message to children, but it was also my message to other parents that it's okay for you to not know. <laughs> you know it's okay for all of us to say we don't know. And this is something we, we can celebrate and enjoy. It's it's kind of a relief not to be the all-knowing parent. Actually, like that's that's yeah. one of the things that we talk about in mindful parenting is that you don't have to have all the answers to all mm. the, all the problems. Like in fact, and 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 I think that is kind of freeing in that in that yes. bigger sense, but also in that relational sense too. Well, it allows you to be honest too with yeah. yourself and with the people around you. It's yeah, and that there's a relief in that too. I think yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So you you and your husband Sam were co-founder of a thing called Project Reason in like what 2007. And it that was a long time ago. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore, I should say. <laughs> but basically you were promoting scientific knowledge and secular values. So I would yeah. just curious like I'd love to like know more about that and mm. and and why you guys were interested in in mm. promoting these things. Uh-huh. Well, he's he's a neuroscientist and I I work with scientists and I think we have both just you know, most of our lives have been um scientifically minded and he actually wrote um some controversial articles and books and, and work um about the clash between religion and science and that was an area that um he had you know personal experience with and became really motivated to to talk about. Um, so it, it partly came from that, but it partly just came from understanding how divisive religion can be and that having secular values and secular ways actually to, to be spiritual, to experience uh, spirituality and having a spiritual life and emphasizing things like meditation and things in those areas, even even rituals and things that I think are important for children and families in a context that doesn't have to be divisive at all so that all human beings can participate in, that just became very important to us. And and science is one way that we can do that. It's it's one thing that you know humanity can embark on together to be seeking truth, but also kind of staring into the unknown together. And so that seems like a natural place to to have that that unity and connection. So, what are some of the the values from science that you mm -hmm. see that our culture kind of should be you know embracing a little bit more that could benefit us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of it is what we've talked about already. So, I think it's 
um, intellectual honesty and honesty in general. I think it's a willingness to to admit what you don't know. It can be a great source of curiosity. I mean, the scientists I know are some of the most deeply curious people I've ever met. And there's a very positive and forward-moving kind of attitude that that curiosity just naturally embodies. Mm. I don't know. There, there are probably more things on the list. Those are the <laughs> that, that come to mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think also just the, these basic, the basic feelings of awe and wonder that there's now actually scientific research on that these are hugely beneficial for our well-being to experience them. And really? I, that's at the core of science. Yeah. They've studied awe and wonder. How? I mean, I don't know if you know, but how? How have they studied awe and wonder? What is? You know, this, these are actually. <laughs> I haven't read the specific studies, and I should, but I know there, there's more and more work in this area. It's it's through fMRI, so there are studies where they they invoke these these feelings in in subjects while they're in an fMRI, where they're tracking blood flow in people's brains, um, and you know they can they can see the parts of the brain that are being used when we're having these experiences um, and how those relate to, to positive effects psychologically. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. I love that. Awesome. And we can also just feel it without, without the studies, we can feel it when we're, when we're, when we're in that place, it feels good. Right. We intuitively know that it is true and it is Mm -hmm. full of awe. That's so cool. And, and yet no one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of TILT is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the TILT Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So it's interesting because to sort of segue to your book, you wrote the book Conscious. This mm-hmm. is not a children's book. This is very right. much for adults, but it's yes. um, it's it's. Uh, 
it's well written. And if you're curious about the mystery of the mind, mm-hmm. I recommend you pick it up. But the what like we were saying, you know, this we can feel right away. Like we can feel in our bodies oftentimes that meditation and you know relax you know relaxing into things and things like that feel good and are good for us we can feel that awe and wonder are good for us mm-hmm. um it's an intuitive knowledge but you write in your book that there's a lot of things about consciousness that are not intuitive right mm-hmm. that we can't understand it intuitively so i'm wondering if you could kind of jump from there and tell us a little bit about you know the basics of this book. yeah yeah. Um, so, you know, to start, I should just make make the connection that um, the main reason I wrote the book um, was just because in my conversations with people, it's something I've been interested in, as I said, my whole life. And um, I've, I've primarily worked with neuroscientists in my in my editing and writing. And so it comes up in conversations with friends who are, you know, I have all kinds of friends who are artists. Um, and writers and you know not necessarily in the sciences and i noticed that every time this topic came up people were so interested and had all these questions and i realized that many people if not most people don't realize until you start talking about it and discussing it how mysterious consciousness is and how dumbfounded scientists still are by it um and so i think we have all of these mysteries available to us that that naturally invoke awe, um, like the vastness of the universe and the Big Bang and where did things come from and even concepts like infinity. There's a wonderful children's book actually called Infinity and Me that I love. Um, And I think it's partly just because it invokes that, like we can't even get our minds around the concept of infinity, right? There are all these things that we get are mysterious and interesting and hard for us to, to get our minds around, but in this very um, exciting way. And many people don't realize that that consciousness is, is one of those mysteries as well. Um, but it's different in the sense that it's right here with us all the time. And so part of um, it, really the main reason I started writing the book was just because I wanted to share this this mystery and and let people know, <laughs> you know, there's, there's the Big Bang and black holes and maybe life on other planets, but there's this thing that's with you all the time. Um, and I think meditation is actually one of the ways we can um, contemplate what this this thing is that we're experiencing, and so I should probably define how I'm using the word. Consciousness. Well, yeah, I want to, yeah, and it's, I, it's I think that it's fascinating because when, uh, as I was talking about this with my husband, um, you know, kind of, I think what I thought off the bat was, well, of course I know what consciousness mm. is like. I'm conscious, like if I'm asleep, I'm unconscious. If that person is blacked out drunk, they're unconscious, you know, or, you know, yes. like this tree is not conscious. And we kind of think we know what it is intuitively, yes. but the, yes. there's places where our intuition goes wrong around this. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. I was saying that I feel like I intuitively know what it is, but you say in the book, there are, there are all these places where we don't, where there's consciousness, but we might not intuitively say there's consciousness, right? Like I, I kind of think, yeah. or maybe you should just talk about yes. what is your definition of what is consciousness? Anyway? Yes. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great place to start um, because the word actually does, does refer to a, a couple of different things, but what I'm talking about and what I'm pointing to when I talk about what's mysterious about it and what I, what I'm calling the mystery of consciousness is the very simple, basic fact that we are having an experience at 
at all. And I use um, Thomas Nagel as a philosopher who wrote this wonderful essay called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And in that essay, he describes consciousness in the following way. He says, an organism is conscious if there is something that it is like to be that organism. And sometimes that language, people get it right away and sometimes it takes some unpacking. But at the most basic level, it's experience. So, you know, if I say to you, are you having an experience right now? Is there something that it's like to be you? Yeah, that um, makes sense. Of course it is. Yes. <laughs> and is there something that it's like to be this pen on my desk? And of course, their answer is no. And so it's just that simple difference, whether there's an experience present or not. And it doesn't necessarily mean complex thought or intentions or, you know, all of these things that we experience as human beings. And it's, it's the reason why he framed this around what is it like to be a bat, right? There's a, we, we assume there's an experience that a bat has. It's something that it's like very, very different from what it's like to be you and I. And so at the most basic level, whether there is experience present or not um, is what I'm calling consciousness and what, what my book is about. Sorry, okay. <laughs> I lost my train of thought again. So we, I can take this in a few different places. No, there's so uh, many places to go with this. But like yeah. the, we, we think we know what the consciousness is. But you point out a couple places where mm. there's consciousness, but we don't even realize it, or vice versa. So maybe you could just show show us a couple of those examples to just mm -hmm. kind of throw a little wrench in what we think yeah. intuitively. Yeah. So yeah, so so most of us have assumed, I mean, I'm, I'm including all of us here, including scientists and many neuroscientists. So this is still kind of our starting point. We, we think of it as analogous to something like electricity or a light bulb, say. So if you don't know anything about the mechanics of light bulbs or electricity and you you know someone turns on a switch in a dark room and suddenly the room is flooded with light, there's something that seems deeply mysterious and magical about that, right? But once you understand the basic science and you understand electric currents and you understand light bulbs, it's less mysterious. We feel like we, we have an understanding of how that works. And most of us have always assumed that consciousness is analogous to that, that there's something the brain is doing and when the neurons start firing in a certain way, you know, the lights come on. And I think there are many reasons to believe that that's actually not a correct analogy and that's not the right way to think about it. And so this is, this is what makes consciousness mysterious. Um, so I actually begin the book with two, um, two questions that I think start to get us to question some of our intuitions. Um, and we do this all the time in science. So science often gives us information that is totally counterintuitive. And we often, our, our intuitions can be shaped. So our intuitions initially as human beings are that the earth is flat, right? We, we have no sense that we're on a sphere in outer space, you know, <laughs> spinning around um, in the way that we are. But once we get enough information back, we can kind of adjust. We, we now understand where the earth is a sphere and it's not flat as it, as our senses lead us to believe. And it actually shifts our intuitions a bit. We, we kind of, we all understand that even though it seems flat, we're, we're on the sphere. And a lot of scientific breakthroughs require that we either drop some intuitions that are misleading us or that we reshape them in, in that way. Um, the germ theory of disease is, is an example I also always give. It was extremely counterintuitive to people. The idea that's, that microscopic things that we can't see or feel or touch or sense in any way can make us sick and kill us. You know, this is something that took people a long time to adjust their intuitions enough to be able to really absorb it and believe it. 
Um, and so there are some intuitions we have about consciousness that I think, I think there's something analogous going on that we're at a point in neuroscience where we need to start shifting some of the intuitions we have in order to, to make progress on, on this mystery. So I begin the book with these two questions that get at what I think are core um, intuitions about what consciousness is. And the first one is, is there behavior we can witness in a person or in any system from the outside that will is concrete evidence that consciousness exists? And our intuitions are very strongly yes, right? And you kind of just spoke to it. You know, I see, I see my daughter upset that she didn't get the breakfast she wanted and she's pounding her fists and you know there's so much behavior that I just of course my daughter's conscious she's she's not um you know under anesthesia right now she's she's exhibiting all these behaviors that sh that show me that she's conscious um and I think that intuition could be wrong it, it may not it may not be but I think that's one place for us to start to pull apart some of these intuitions that we have at some point, we could have like AIs that yes. are programmed to do these kind of things. Well, so that's one example. And then I also, I approach this from a couple of different angles, but one angle is just realizing that behavior is not, that any type of behavior is not necessary for consciousness to exist. And so I cite some interesting examples, one of which is, is called locked-in syndrome, which, which many people are aware of now because of the book, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which was this famous example, um, beautifully written book by a man who was completely, um, I, I think it was a stroke, he had a stroke and was completely paralyzed um, with the one exception of his left eyelid. He was able to move his left eyelid. It took them a long time to notice it. So from the outside, yes, I know, I, I <laughs> <laughs> see you on the video holding your heart. Yeah, it is It is a heartbreaking story and a terrifying circumstance, but it's possible for someone to have their consciousness fully intact, to be seeing, hearing, thinking, this man wrote a book in this condition, right, of his experience. Um, he, he developed a way to, for his, with his caretakers, they developed a way for him to blink his eye in a certain way for different letters. And so they literally letter by letter spell, spelled out all of the words. And he wrote a book in this way, which is incredible. But, but the, you know, the point as far as consciousness is you can have a, as full an experience as you and I are having right now with no ability to, to express that experience through behavior. Um, so that's one, that's the kind of the first attempt to at least start to break the connection between behavior and consciousness. But then I, I get into some very interesting plant behaviors, um, which I... Wow. Oh, I, I have one marked off that I would be happy to share, which I thought I have a little wow in my book. My right, right. Can, I, can I read this? Go for it, yeah. In the summer months, when the, when the fir tree needs more carbon, the birch... So this is the Douglas fir and the paper birch that have these underground networks. Um, anyway, in the summertime yes. when the fir needs more carbon, to say they're 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 connected underground. These very elaborate underground networks of roots, but also fungal networks um, that they're communicating with each other through. So go go ahead. This is so cool. The birch sent more carbon when the when the fir needed more carbon. The birch sent more carbon to the fir, and at other times when the fir was still growing but the birch needed more carbon because it was leafless. The fir sent more carbon to the birch, revealing the fact that these two species were in fact interdependent. Oh, wow, that's amazing, isn't it? I yeah. love learning this. 
Her work is wonderful. That That's the work of Susan Samard. And she actually has um, a, te- a wonderful TED Talk that I, I recommend watching on this subject. Um, but yeah, there are all kinds of things like, um, you know, she calls them the mother trees, but the, the trees that drop seedlings nearby, they're able, through these underground networks, they're able to recognize their kin and distinguish them from other trees that are in the same area and, you know, neighboring trees. And they they send like defense message signals to their kin in a way that they don't to other trees that they're connected to. I mean, it's this elaborate, fascinating behavior, plant behavior that I never knew about that I, I didn't I didn't put this in the book because I think plants are conscious. But what's interesting is it gets you to question which behaviors we think are evidence of consciousness because you start to see behaviors in plants that of of course are are very different from behaviors in humans, but are not so different that they wouldn't fall under the same category of things. Like the example I gave of, you know, seeing witnessing my child exhibit certain behavior and how I respond to that and how these feelings we have of, of love and empathy and fear in consciousness motivate us that you start to see these types of behaviors in places where we assume there isn't consciousness present. And so these are ways to start to chip away at some of our intuitions. And many intuitions give us true information about our environment and the world, and some don't. And the interesting thing about intuitions is that they give us a sense that we have real information when sometimes they're giving us a truth about the the world and and sometimes they're not. And so in science, there are so many points at which we have to challenge some of our intuitions in order to gain a a deeper understanding of a more fundamental truth. And I think neuroscience is is a science that's um, new enough that we haven't spent a lot of time contemplating some of the ways in which the information we're getting is counterintuitive and, and and consciousness is is one of the big areas where this is true. Oh my gosh, it's so and so I I love that I you know this idea that intuitions are giving the giving us the sense that we have real information but you're you're basically the the work that you've done in this book and the work on consciousness and things like that is inviting us to really question some of these things and I think that if we pull back like really that's the bigger picture is like can we start to and then it goes back to all right like then can we start to say well I think I know what's going on here like that's that's sort of closed mind that's judgment mm-hmm. and then if when we step back into curiosity into awe mm-hmm. maybe I don't really know it goes back to your book wonder we're tying up all these circles here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well it's, I always feel like you know if you see if you see my work it kind of seems like these things that are not connected but once you start talking about the content you kind of see where where the thread is yeah yeah absolutely i mean there Annika, there are so many other things I would love to talk to you and ask you about as a another person in this space and talking about um, there's a lot in, in the book Consciousness that it, it provides a, a, a way for us to really dive into a mystery um, in a way that's really accessible. So I really appreciate um, how how accessible um, you, you've made the book and, and made this, this mystery. It really does make it... Um, make it accessible and has, has provoked some very interesting conversations yeah. <laughs> myself and my husband. <laughs> that's great. No, that's the whole point. It really, it's, it is about asking questions more than anything. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, 
if if we had a couple more hours, we would also talk about free will, which I have a big mm. problem with. <laughs> yeah, we, we've had <laughs> like hours of back and forth on that, but I'll, that'll yeah, have well, to be. Part we can two. either get on the phone later, or I can come back another time. <laughs> we can do part two. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, well, Annika, I'm so happy that you had come on the podcast, and and I want to thank you for for not only coming on, but for um, I think it's very um, inspiring to me how flexible you've been with your work and the different ways you're following your curiosity and um, and bringing sort of this realness and this humanness and this honesty to mm-hmm. here are the things I think I know and here you know let me share it with you and I think that's really um, it, it's really opened up doors for me to have things to think about I'm sure it's, mm-hmm. it, it's having ripple effects that you, you can't even imagine so yeah, thank you thank you oh, I feel the same way about what you're doing so and so people can find the book of course everywhere books are sold and where can they find you um, it's just my name for my website it's annikaharris.com a-n-n-a-k-a harris h-a-r-r-i-s.com and I have some, um, I think I mentioned some guided meditations for children there. And yeah, my, my books and more information about my work is, is all there. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. I love what Annika says about sharing mindfulness with kids and how that honesty, right? About saying, I don't know to our children. Yes, yes, yes. We need that. Absolutely. So I hope you check out her work and her books. Um, Have you left a review for the podcast yet on Apple Podcasts? Please do if you have not yet. It makes such a huge difference helping other people. It's like that iTunes, that Apple Podcast algorithm, helping people find the podcast. So please support this work, support the work that myself and my team does to get this podcast to you every week by leaving a review and sharing it with friends, you know, shout, give me a shout out on Instagram and, and, uh, you know, share it with your friends. Um, and leaving a review is a great way to do that. I am wishing you a beautiful week, my friend. I'm wishing you peace. I'm wishing you joy. I am so super excited for you to be back and listening next week where we have a giant coming to the podcast, a incredible a teacher that is respected all around the world by millions of people. The teacher Sharon Salzberg is, I'm so honored to have her as a guest on my podcast. So you can listen next week. Make sure you are here. And I can't wait for you to be here. And I'm wishing you a wonderful week, wishing you some, wishing you mindful moments. I wish you a strong practice. I wish you your feet on the ground and and me too. I'll be practicing to do that, to be present, to be less reactive. Let's, Let's work on it together. We can do it. All right. Thank you so much for listening, my friend. Namaste. Are you a mom who wants to feel less stressed and enjoy motherhood more? Do you want to be calmer with your kids and be more present for all of your life? I'm a mom who has gone from really being stressed and yelling when my kids were young to having a more grounded, more at ease relationship with life and having more enjoyable, cooperative relationships with my kids. And I've shown hundreds and thousands of women around 
around the world how to do this, and I wanna show you how to do it too. So if you are currently feeling stuck or stagnant, this is definitely for you. I've created a free, downloadable Audible training, Mindfulness for Moms, the superpower you need, and it will show you how to respond rather than react, how to let go of stress and feel more grounded in seconds, how to have a smoother day today and become more present for your kids for a lifetime. To get on on this audio training absolutely free, simply visit the website www.mindfulmomguide.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.